You're listening to the Unmute Podcast with Maisha Cherry. Welcome to the place where philosophy and real world issues collide. Hello, and welcome to the Unmute Podcast. This is the place where I have the opportunity to talk to young, diverse philosophers about the social and political issues of our day. Before we get started, I'm excited to let you know that if you like the podcast and you have enjoyed listening to the episodes, these conversations are now available in book form. The book is called Unmuted, Conversations on Prejudice, Oppression, and Social Justice, and it is published by Oxford University Press. If you are listening before March 1st, head over to Amazon and pre-order you a copy. If you're listening after March 1st, run to a bookstore or online and grab a copy of the book. You will not regret it. The book has a foreword by Cornell West, illustrations of contributors, an informative glossary section, and lots of accessible and interesting conversations. Go ahead and grab a copy of Unmuted today. Now, let's get into the episode. Today, I have the pleasure of talking with Catherine Nurlock. Catherine is the Kenneth Mark Drain Chair in Ethics at Trent University. Her interests are in moral emotions and ethical virtues. Some of her books include Forgiveness from a Feminist Perspective and The Moral Psychology of Forgiveness. In this episode, we talk about complaining, how and why it is often gendered, its benefits, how to do it well, and so much more. Hello, Kate, and welcome to the Unmeet Podcast. How are you? I am Peachy Kane. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing well. Thank you so much for coming on. It's my pleasure. Let's first start with this question. Kate, how did you get interested in philosophy? I wasn't interested in philosophy, uh, <laughs> largely because I didn't know what it was. And my father's aspiration for me was to be a toll booth operator. So really? I thought, yeah, uh, but he thought I should go to junior college and learn a little something. And I did my best to learn something, but I managed to get both a two-year degree and a four-year degree without really knowing what philosophy was. I, I did well enough to start to take a foray into going to law school. But even as I took a law school class, I kept asking, like, what do we think is good law and bad law? And the teacher said, Miss Norlock, this is not philosophy. And he said it so contemptuously that I realized, I think I'm supposed to be doing whatever that is. So I didn't start doing philosophy until I was in my mid-20s and thought, I'll, I'll just go to grad school, I guess. So did you come to this conclusion when you were still in undergrad? No, I was well out of undergrad, taking a stab at taking a law class or two because I thought I ought to. Oh, just, just randomly just taking a course. Yeah, I, I finished my bachelor's. I took a, a one law class because I did well in the LSAT and still had this sort of sense that law school wasn't what I wanted. But I took one or two courses. And I was so ill-suited to them that I, I wanted to drop out of the law classes, but hold on to that student loan because I was on food stamps and thought, if I don't hold on to my student loan, I cannot pay my bills. So I looked for the only class that would take me so late in the year. And it was a women's studies class taught by a French language instructor. And she had us reading Simone de Beauvoir and Jean-Paul Sartre. And I said, who are these people? And she said, well, these are philosophers. And I was so excited. I was like, I'm told that I should do that. So she said, uh, why don't you move to Madison, Wisconsin and get a PhD in it? And I said, yeah, okay, I'll do that then. <laughs> and, and so I literally did so because one women's studies teacher told me to, and I had no clue what it was I was stumbling into, but it's fabulous. I'm glad I did it. 
It's interesting because you would think that, oh, particularly in a college space, oh, you took a course. So that that was what encouraged you. But it seems as if you didn't, well, a direct course in philosophy. It seems like you didn't take a philosophy course. You were taking these two other courses that had, well, I'm not going to say had nothing to do with philosophy, but were not philosophy classes proper. So you have law and you have women's studies. And both of those in some ways, are revealing to you that philosophy is something that you should take. That's kind of interesting. That's not a coincidence in some ways. I think the weird thing is, I think of a lot of my grade school, high school, and university experience as one of discouragement, not encouragement. (laughs) (laughs) It did. It really did all add up to me becoming this person. So I, I think all of it, in one way or another, shoved me toward philosophy without my even knowing it. So let's, let's talk about some of your philosophy. You recently, well, you've come out with a lot recently, uh, but one of those things in which you've come out with is, is a paper on complaining and also on shaming. So let's talk about those two things today. So we often do complain and some people call it whining or crying about things. <laughs> and the practice is not far into the human condition. Let's talk about philosophy, particularly intellectual history of philosophy. Tell us, what is the commonly accepted view in the philosophy literature of, of what complaining is? Well, there's a broad and a narrow definition. And when I say it's commonly accepted, I mean that almost nobody talks about it at all. But okay. when we talk about it broadly, it's just the social form of pain expression. So philosopher Julian Beghini writes about it too. He and I both rely on the psychologist Robin Kowalski, who says complaining is just an expression of dissatisfaction. And that's whether it's subjectively experienced or not, right? So that'll include protest. You don't have to feel anything in particular to say, this thing stinks. And if you want to talk about the narrower definition, the one I like talking about, it's not just any expression of dissatisfaction. I like focusing on the ones that are subjectively experienced. So I focus on Aristotle and Kant, who are reasonably major dudes, right? And Aristotle and Kant describe complaining as not just any social form of pain expression, but specifically like the enjoyable wailing to friends. And I'm going to quote Aristotle and Kant. This isn't me. When they say, you know, like what females and effeminate or soft men do. So they describe it as like whimpering or the British translations, whinging, you know, that really indefensible. I'm not protesting to make the world better. I just want you to know my feet hurt. I love that stuff. So it seems as if if we're talking about complaining for, for a lot of people who are even hearing the word, in some ways, we've been trained to think that that's something that we ought not to do or a person oh, yeah. who, who, who does it. I'm not going to say that person is lacking in character, but it's probably a person that we wouldn't want to be around. And I just I just remember, I mean, just going back, you know, over my life as a youth, that the prohibition against complaining, at least in my household, was based on the idea that complaining shows kind of a sense of ungratefulness. It was seen as a, as a refusal to kind of appreciate the positive instead of focus on the negative. And, and since being grateful was something that I was taught I should do, I was encouraged not to complain. So let's go back to Aristotle and Kant just for a little bit. You point out in Aristotle and Kant that they had, they had reasons for their prohibitions that go beyond these common folk ones that I'm talking about. Why do these thinkers think that complaining is something that we ought not to do? What were their prohibitions against it? And do you agree with their reasons for holding these views? Well, yes and no. Uh, Aristotle and Kant, I'm going to keep on teaching till I die, but they are perfectionists and idealistic guys with this sort of masculine conception, right? So I love teaching their ethical theories, but both Aristotle and Kant are talking about how to be the perfect ideal of a masculine man. And if you're going to be this 
perfect ideal of a masculine man and you're going to be ethical and moral. This means you have to exert mind over your matter, right? That you ought to be in control of your bodies because you are a rational, deliberative cat who can take control of how you're feeling when it's involuntary. So it is their view that morality and character takes thought. And I don't disagree with that at all. I think that's lovely. But it's also their view that complaining is thoughtless, that complaining means you didn't even try to grab hold of that wacky body of yours, right? You, you gave in to how your pains felt. And then without even thinking about how you sound and how you look to others, you started yakking about your feelings. And so that's why they keep describing it as, as soft. And they use this really gendered language where they describe it as feminine or effeminate. And they say, you know, it's, it's soft to give in to this urge to complain because they got this vision of the, the best possible man. And he's not soft. He's always capable of exerting this control over his body with his mind. And that's one way of looking at complaining. Uh, I, I think it's kind of thoughtless, you know, to assume that we never want to hear about other people's pains, too, though. Like, I think you should. I think morality and character do take thought. But maybe one of the things you should think about is when and whether you should talk to people about your pains. That's why I'm sorry to hear that you were discouraged from complaining, just like my parents in some ways. But <laughs> but if you were discouraged from complaining, then your loved ones actually made you a little worse off instead of better. Because the psychologist suggests that it's kind of measurably the case that when we complain, our mood goes down a little bit when we say the complaint aloud, because to say it is to sort of experience it. So your mood takes a dip when you complain aloud. And if you get affirmation, it will improve your mood higher than it was even before you complained. So the way to make people better off when they complain is actually to affirm the complaint. If you tell them, you know, you're doing it wrong, look on the bright side, then you leave them with the mood dip of complaining and none of the improvement of affirmation. So it actually makes people worse off to tell them, cut that up. Right. Thinking about your reference to Aristotle and Kant and kind of the gender notion behind complaining, it makes me think that a lot hasn't changed. I mean, even when we think about today, the what is the phrase? Oh, you're complaining or you're whining like a little B-I-T-C-H, right? <laughs> right? That, that's something that, that women do in some ways, right? Yeah. So for, I know we mentioned kind of myself as a, as a woman, but I think a lot of men, even today, is given kind of this prohibition because complaining is what women do. And you don't want to yes. whine like a little B-I-T-C-H. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, it, you know, it's still the feminine stereotype that um, if you and I are upset and sad, Maisha, we are going to bust out some Rocky Road ice cream and two spoons, and we are going to share a container and talk about our feels. And men don't do that. A real man doesn't complain, right? But of course, it's, it's only a feminine stereotype because of that Stoic legacy, because of Aristotle and Kant and the Stoics telling us, you know, if you really had a brain, then you would exert it over your body. You wouldn't talk to each other about these feelings at all, like men do. But we know now, even men don't really want to live up to this perfectionist ideal, right? Why would they even come up with their BS man cave idea? Unless what they want to do is something in that cave they don't want us to see. <laughs> right. And I think that the lesson here, you know, one of the things I've, I've been interested in for several years is is thinking about the ways in which kind of like standards of masculinity not only hurts women, right, or hurts other people, but it also hurts that individual, uh, that man. And so it's interesting that you say in general 
that as a result of not complaining, what we're missing out on, right? We're missing out on the good of what complaining can do. And by giving into that kind of stereotype of not wanting like TCH, that man is suffering as a, as a result. So you mentioned protesting a while ago. And I want to talk about uh, the relationship between protesting and complaining. What is the relationship? Oh, they overlap. But you can have complaint and not protest, right? If I just come in and say, my feet hurt. And you can have protest and not complaint. Um, I think a lot of the times when we sign a petition saying, you know, this stinks and you have to change it, we're protesting that without it including any affective component, you know, and that's good. I think that's necessary. Sometimes when I want to tell someone a position of political power above me, this thinks you have to change it. I don't want them visiting my feelings and talking about whether or not I have grounds to complain. I just want them to agree with me that something stinks and it should change. So I definitely think they can, they can overlap, but you can also have one without the other. And I want both of them. I think they both contribute to a good life. I know I'm thinking, as I say this, of Julian Beghini, who's got a lovely book on complaint. And he's going to argue that really, you know, complaining should be constructive. It should, it should make the world better. And the reason I resist that is there's a part of me that thinks, what, all the time? Like, <laughs> even when I want pie and ice cream, I, 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 know, I know there's a lot to solve in the world. And I know nothing's going to get better if we don't protest. But even thinking that complaints should always be protest, to me, that is this overly idealized form of a human being that says we shouldn't admit that we want to rest, that we want to have fun, that after dinner and a glass of wine, I just want to sit back and complain. So I I don't want my whole life to be devoted to protests, maybe 50% of it, maybe 85% of it, and maybe 95% of it ought to. But I still also think, you know, the good life is, I want us all to have good lives, you know, whether, whether the world is fair or not, and it's never going to be fair. Am I just doomed to not have a good life because I'm supposed to be protesting? I disagree. I think sometimes, I know I joked about that feminine stereotype, but Maisha, I do want to have some Rocky Road ice cream with you. <laughs> <laughs> so so I'm, I'm thinking about times in which I can play with my girlfriends, for example. We, we probably are not eating ice cream at the same time, but we, we can play <laughs> to each other. I think that's what friends do, right? Now, mind you, you said that Complaining is kind of an expression, at least an expression of like the pain or dissatisfaction that one has experienced. And those are not abstract things, right? Usually people or other agents bring the pain, right? They bring the dissatisfaction. So I I wonder, do you think there's a thin line between complaining and gossiping, right? Because we are (laughs) talking about a person who brings the pain or or brings the satisfaction. Is there a thin line there? Have I gossiped? I'm like racking my brain to try to remember if I've ever gossiped to you. And I'm hoping I have not. It's a thin line. I think they're both forms of bonding. And I do think gossiping may not be the best form of bonding, right? So I love something Lisa Tessman wrote when she said, the good life, like a really flourishing life is one of successful sociality. It's like, oh, I like that successful sociality. And I think gossiping and complaining are both forms of sociality. But whenever I think of gossiping, that's like a second best form of sociality when you don't have ideal conditions, right? Like when I think of why my coworkers and I gossip, it's because we haven't been given enough information to actually talk about what information we've got. When I think about uh, gossiping to my friends, I think, you know, that's partly to reveal 
dark and negative and wicked and judgmental thoughts I have. And even that, I want to say, even gossiping should be done more than never. Because it would be, it's hard for me to imagine being friends with Alice without ever telling her a dark, negative, wicked, gossipy thought I have, right? I, I don't want her to just see me as this positive, sweet, BS version of myself. I want her to know the whole of me. And so like a lot of what I'm defending when I defend complaining and to a, to a lesser extent gossiping is just defending being a whole real human being with vulnerabilities and pains and even wicked thoughts instead of being this stoic version that you want people to perceive as stronger than you are. So let's talk about another kind of relationship. So I may post a complaint online and direct it at an airline, for example, right? You notice with tweets, you know, you can do that, right? You can say, hey, I went on such and such airline and you put at the airline and this happened. And so the person is, is expressing pain, expressing dissatisfaction that they have with that particular airline. However, this complaint can easily be taken as an example of, of, of shaming that airline. Is it both? Does the complaint morph into shame at some, some point or are the two completely different from each other? And, and the reason why I mention this is because you have done some work on online shaming and you come to very different conclusions than what you come to when it comes to complaining. So what is the relationship between those two? Yeah, I'm so positive about some complaining and so negative about some shaming. But I think, I think shaming is a success term. And that just means I think it's only shaming if it socially catches on that people agree. You know, you're right. This is shameful. Or your target agrees. You're right. I'm ashamed. Right. So that's what I mean when I say I think shaming is a success term. Oh, and I should add, I don't even think all shaming is bad. It's risky, but it's not bad. Like evidence suggests that some people are actually motivated by shame to change. We can talk more about why that is some other time. But, but I don't even think the statement, you ought to be ashamed, counts as shaming. It might just be a correct report of how things just are. Right. And if it doesn't catch on socially, then it's not, it's not shaming. It's just a representation of circumstances and facts. So I guess what I'm saying is shaming and complaining, they're both, they're both just morally risky forms of communication. And the fact is, and it's what I love about this research. I mean, I really love this, but it's going to sound like a less than satisfying answer. I love the moral risk involved in complaining. I love that it might turn into shaming if it catches on, if people decide to ruin the lives and make wretched the destiny of this airline employee because of what you said. And I think, you know, it's only a moral risk. And sometimes it's worth the moral risk to uh, lodge a really well-justified complaint. So I, I think Aristotle and Kant are also right that we shouldn't, we shouldn't take everything bad thing that happens to us without protest or complaining, right? Sometimes you ought to point out, this is shameful. This is, I can't believe you would do this to anyone. Whether or not catches on as shaming is a problem that you don't have complete control over and that uh, you bear some responsibility for starting if it snowballs into shaming. Uh, but I don't even think all shaming is necessarily bad, although I'm pretty negative about it in my article. I admit. So some people may say, OK, I agree with you, Kate, so far. And they may even agree that complaining too much, we can see how that can be kind of vicious in a way. But you also c claim that complaining too little is a vice. Uh, help us make sense of that. I do. And I, and I wrote that even knowing, like, I'm not sure I've ever heard my father complain in his life. Like, am I saying my dad has vices? But yeah, he'd agree he does. <laughs> so I want to say never complaining. It's a little like never protesting, right? It says 
I can and will take every pain in silence. Like, I am a rock. And my concern about this is, again, in that abstract ideal of of what it means to be a really blazing, heroic, manly character, that sounds great. But I also like Lisa Tessman saying we should exhibit this successful sociality. And I don't think a rock exhibits successful sociality. And I have to admit that much as I admire people like my dad who never complain, I also don't feel like I can go to them with my pain. So if being a rock kind of shuts down the likelihood of things like commiseration, the likelihood of things like people taking you into their confidence about their own pains, then, you know, I worry that never complaining means I don't acknowledge my own pains. I'm not willing to share myself with you and you will get no acknowledgement from me. Uh, I think it, I think it can perpetuate a climate of silence with respect to pain because you're not a rock all by yourself. You're a rock in the presence of other people. And it's interesting in, in this answer, you're also providing for us the good that complaining does in the world. Yeah. And I, f- I find that quite interesting. So I, I alluded to in, in the question, the notion about doing it too much. And I guess before reading your work, I thought to myself, we're just being around a person who just does it a lot, who, who frequently complains. It's just annoying. And maybe I look at them as just being too negative, right? So that's why I think it's bad to do it frequently. But what, what other reasons would you give? Why is it bad to frequently complain? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think, I think the reason most of us assume, you know, complaining's not the thing to do is because people complain so much. I mean, you know, most people I know are not guilty of erring on the side of deficiency, right? Like most people I know, including myself, we, we're much more likely to err on the side of excess. And I do think that does result in other climates <laughs> that, you know, if everybody at your workplace complains a ton, then you have a workplace filled with negativity. Uh, even if you run around affirming each other all the time, you're just sort of getting into habits of complaining. And and I do agree with Aristotle and Kant that habits of complaining, those can become thoughtless. Now you're not diligently trying to suss out like whether you should connect with other people about a negative thing. Now you're just falling back on a habit that takes no thought that can result in real mood contagion. Um, this is the way this office feels and you catch it like a virus and you come into it. And, uh, and I think if someone complains frequently, if I complain a lot, I'm going to outrun people's ability to affirm what I'm saying. Right. So I was saying, I was telling you earlier that if you complain, then your loved ones are, would help you far more by affirming your complaint than by telling you to stop it. Because um, when people complain, their mood goes down and affirmation can improve your mood higher than it was before the complaint. But if I complain frequently, then people can only affirm me so much before they sort of run out of ways to affirm me. And now I'm, uh, I'm just at risk of a lot of rejection. So my mood is going to go lower and lower and lower. So I do think like the excess it's bad for the individual. If the frequency outruns the possibility of affirmation, they'll feel worse. And I do think it's bad for social cultures and group cultures and, and places where we kind of need to rely on each other to do something other than bring each other down and affirm each other. So what can we do to make sure that we, in your words, complain well? That's a hard question. See, I'm really good at pointing out problems and I'm not as good at like coming up with solutions, but I can do some. And if I were to offer ways to complain well, I'd say that uh, we should consider the ways in which complaining can reduce your isolation. 
right? So you're telling people, I am not alone. So maybe the way to complain well is to think about times when, when it, what's important in a thoughtful way, in a deliberative way, is to let people know that you feel isolated and that this is causing problems, right? And ex- it expresses your, need- your neediness to others. So maybe there are times when you should thoughtfully and deliberately tell people, I need affirmation that something is bad. Plus, I think it reduces others' isolation. So my big pitch in my article was, um, I wrote this article about complaining because I keep teaching Kant and Aristotle saying, never complain. Complaining is always bad. You know, the, the number of complaints you should have is zero. And I said, here's one reason to complain. It reduces others' isolation, right? Sometimes I complain to let somebody else know that he is not alone. So when a lot of family members leave a situation and we all look vexed and sad, I might complain to open up a window in which we can do co-misery, right? Co-miseration. So I think we should be thoughtful and deliberate about times when opening up that window would be a good way to start commiseration. And in a way that leaves yourself open instead of demanding it of others. Instead of saying, you look upset, saying, I don't know about you, but I found that upsetting. So it can maintain these lines of communication, right? And say, this is a relationship in which we can share pains, where we don't have to be strong and stoical. We can also trust each other to disclose ways in which we're not invulnerable. Yeah, it makes me think about the example that you give. I think you allude to the weather. And when I when I read that, I thought about the ways in which I have approached strangers. So we're, we're even, you know, waiting for the bus or whatever, waiting for the train. And as a way to kind of connect to the stranger that I don't know, but we're the only two people who are on the turnstile, for example, I may, I may make a complaint about the weather, right? I yes. may say, this weather is something else, isn't it? And then there's stuff. <laughs> so basically, I mean, I haven't, I've never looked at it in that way. But one of the things that I got from the article was in, in that space of complaining, I'm connecting to this stranger. And I've, I've never thought about it in that, in that particular way. And it's interesting as, as much as we're talking about these, these former relationships that, we've, that we are a part of, I, allow me to think about how it applies even in stranger kind of relationships is quite interesting to me. Yeah, I think it is one of the most valuable forms of connection we can offer people, especially in this just non-ideal world with our non-ideal bodies, right? And when I look at the virtues, the way Aristotle describes the virtues and Kant describes his doctrine of virtue. They're, they're the virtues for people who aren't vulnerable to pain. And even if they are vulnerable to pain, you know, the virtue is you're going to be a stoical, brave guy. Suck it up and exert your brain over your body. But I think, I think we should be using our brains to work out when we should be acknowledging our vulnerabilities to each other. Say, I see that you suffer. I suffer too. And I think that's, there's something important and beautiful there. And I think, I think, I'm still kind of spinning my wheels over your early question, like, do I think Aristotle and Kant hold up? And I want to say, well, they sure help me think about how wrong they are. And so I think they do hold up, but they hold up because they help me to say, you know, today here uh, with these people I'm surrounded by, I don't want to be a rock who lives with other rocks. I want to tell somebody my toes are frozen (laughs) and I want them to say, well, of course they are. You are vulnerable to cold, baby. Right. I want them to say. We are vulnerable, and to the extent we pretend we're not, we cut ourselves off from each other. So, you are the co-founder and co-editor of Feminist Philosophy Quarterly, a journal that began very recently in 2015. In 2015, why did you and your co-founders think that philosophy needed another journal? 
We thought it needed another journal in 2013 because we were all mildly and uh, sympathetically freaked out that Hypatia declared a moratorium saying they were overwhelmed with submissions. (laughs) And just for those who don't know, Hypatia is a journal uh, that also publishes feminist philosophy or the only other journal that specifically focuses on that, correct? Yeah, I was going to say for a good 20 years there, Hypatia was the journal of feminist philosophy. There are other journals that will publish feminist and philosophical works. But in the field, Hypatia was considered the journal that's recognized as being the one that publishes the feminism. And that's not enough, right? You need more than one journal for a growing subfield in a discipline where, you know, I think women were what, 13% of all philosophers in the 90s. And now we're, we're much closer to 25%. So our presence is growing. With the presence of more women, you're more likely to do feminist philosophy. Not all women, blah. But we needed more than we had. And uh, much as I appreciated Hypatia being there for us for decades, I thought that's not enough. And it's behind a paywall. <laughs> so not only do I think we need another journal, but I thought we needed one that didn't that you didn't have to pay for a subscription to read. So for those who are are interested, they don't have to pay for it. They can just easily just go to the website and look at articles going all the way back to 2015. Is that correct? That is correct. It's open access. It's got triply anonymous peer review like any other awesome journal should. But although it is well edited and well refereed, it is free to authors and it's free to readers. This question may put you on the spot just a little bit, but I'm, gonna, I'm just going to throw it out there, right? So in the last year and a half, maybe two years, as I know of, you have come out with three journal articles and an edited volume, all on different topics. And there may be more. There may be more. I'm pretty sure there's probably more. So, so Kate, can you give us some productivity hacks? <laughs> <laughs> and or can you break some productivity myths for us? That's a really good question. Am I productive? I, I was surprised I had as much productivity as I did until you said that out loud. And uh, yeah, if I were to break some productivity myths, it would be that you're only going to be productive if you wait for inspiration to strike. I, I don't wait for inspiration to strike anymore. I have gotten firmly on board with those who say, you know, if you write on a regular basis, inspiration comes from regular reading and writing, regardless of whether you feel inspired or not. So I try to keep up some regularity of habits. Having said that, I know that a lot of the how to write a lot articles out there and books out there are written by social scientists who say, write every day, you have to write every day. In my humble opinion, that is not true. And if you feel like when you're teaching all the time, you're therefore not a good researcher, I want to say, I feel the same way. And there are long stretches where all I can do is prepare my classes, teach my classes, and grade the results of my classes. So if you're feeling out there like I teach 100% of the time for long stretches and I don't do research, and therefore I'm not a good researcher, you're wrong. You're a great researcher. You're just not a great researcher when you're overwhelmed with teaching. So it is possible to be productive over the course of a year, but have stretches of that year where 100% of yourself is on the job of marking those papers. That does happen, but it doesn't prevent you from being a great researcher. You are, you are still great, my friends. Let me, let me also ask you this question, and I wonder if you've ever, you've ever felt this. I know a lot of uh, grad students and junior folk who, it's not an inspiration problem that they have, but they are afraid of putting their stuff out there. And I wonder if you ever felt that way 
or know anyone who've ever felt that way. And some ways to kind of, I'm not going to say get over it because I don't think all things are, you know, you can get totally over. But do you have any suggestions on how to get through that? Because I think that's probably one of the things that's prevent a lot of people from being productive, right? So it could be the case that they are working on things, right? So they're productive in a sense, but are not submitting, right? Or are not sharing their stuff. And I, and I wonder if you have any, any experience with that, any suggestions in regards to that? You know, for years, I was, I have this strange CV, if you look at it, where it's obvious that for years, I was going around giving public presentations and giving commentaries and toxic conferences and not publishing at all. And that is for a few complicated reasons, some of which might be kind of gendered, but I think the results are going to apply to a lot of people, regardless of their social location. And that is, I genuinely believed that my written work wasn't good enough to even try to submit to publication, even though I was giving, what, five, 10, sometimes 15 talks a year, I still thought, but my writing is not good enough to actually send to a journal. And in retrospect, I think I was far more likely to heed the call of service to others than I was to my interest in advancing my own writing. The cure for me was starting a feminist philosophy quarterly and seeing floods of submissions from people whose work was, and I love all our authors, but no better than mine. Um, it was just as effortful and um, attempty and not entirely perfect as my work. And there was nothing like seeing submissions from other people from the point of view of an editor to make me think, why am I not trying when so many people with the same quality of writing are trying? I'm saying this not because I think submissions are bad. I'm saying this because I think submissions are good. And so is a lot of the stuff I had on the back burner that I wasn't even trying to send out. But honestly, I think one of the reasons a lot of us get in these habits of not being productive, and for years I was not, is because we do not prioritize ourselves and our own well-being. We are, for because of the constraints of the job, we prioritize prepping for class and marking the papers that result from class. Then if we have time after that, we prioritize service because other people say, I need you. I want you and I need you. And I think, oh, you want and need me. I should help you. And if you have anything left over from that, then you think, geez, it's been a while since I published and I should try to publish something. But uh, all the stuff I was expending on service, it was building up. The reason you saw a lot of that publications in a row is because what I kept doing is presenting papers at conferences and working up stuff for commentaries on other people's papers because other people said they needed me to do it and not because I thought, I want to publish this. And it lit a bit of a fire under me when I finally realized people are starting to publish things that I have written remarkably similar arguments for. <laughs> they are getting a publication and I am not. This isn't good. I'm not looking out for myself. Wonderful advice. Hey, thank you so much. I really enjoyed this conversation. I did too. Thanks for calling. Let's do this again sometime. <laughs> for more access to the Unmute Podcast, subscribe on iTunes or head over to the website at www.unmutepodcast.co. There you can get more information about our guests, participate in giveaways, as well as learn more about people, books, and concepts mentioned in today's episode. Until next time, remember that your silence will not protect you. Listen, think, speak. The world will be different as a result.